Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program this evening, COVID cases continue to spike with big numbers and big concerns in Quebec and Ontario on a day when Parliament moves to fast-track new economic supports for Canadians with the help of the NDP. Let's begin tonight with the continuing spike in COVID-19 cases in Canada. Two provinces, Quebec and Ontario, are seeing Big jumps. Ontario hit its highest single-day total with 700 new cases. The Premier confirmed Ontario is in the second wave now and announced $52 million to recruit 3,700 more frontline health care workers. We know that we're in the second wave. And we know that it will be worse than the first wave. But what we don't know yet is how bad the second wave will be. The reality is... It's up to each of us. Together, our collective actions will decide if we face a wave or a tsunami. And in the province of Quebec, Montreal and Quebec City being designated red alert zones with new cases higher than they've been since early May. 750 new cases reported in Quebec today. Residents being told to cancel all social gatherings and stay home except for work and school. Well, let's bring in Dr. Isaac Bogosh, an infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. Uh, Dr. Bogosh, good to see you again. Thanks for taking time to speak with me today. Appreciate it. Um, My pleasure. Let's, let's start by these, uh, the, these clearly worrisome numbers, these big spikes in Ontario and the province of Quebec. Um, how surprised are you to see these kinds of numbers in Ontario? Uh, in all fairness, many people have been predicting a rise in cases in the fall and the winter months. We knew that cases were going to start to climb as people moved indoors for a variety of reasons, you know, back to school, back to work in person, colder temperatures, economies opening. There's a lot of reasons that are driving people back inside. Personally, I was a little surprised that they went up this early on in the in the year. I thought we'd be starting to see the rise in perhaps October or so, but, uh, you know, we start to see this gradually start to rise in, in uh, late August, and it, uh, it continues on to this day. So we haven't really turned the corner yet, and we're still seeing this, uh, this trend, especially in Ontario and Quebec, but also in Alberta and B.C. Mm-hmm. with all the metrics headed in the wrong direction. So when you say you're a little bit surprised to, to see it this early, what does that say to you? Well, it just I think there were probably factors in these in these provinces that were driving infection and uh, they were, we knew what they were. We knew, you know, this, this far into the epidemic, we know how this virus is transmitted and mainly it's indoor gatherings. So be it, uh, you know, private parties, be it certain sectors of the economy, be it outbreaks associated with some restaurants or bars. You know, there's a lot of different factors that were driving uh, these outbreaks. And, you know, in all fairness, I think during the quieter times of the, of the summer, we, we probably could have addressed uh, the smoldering cases here and there uh, and, and been a little bit more proactive in, in ensuring that there was greater public health messaging and uh, access to diagnostic mm-hmm. testing and contact tracing, really reevaluating all the fundamental pillars of an epidemic response and really optimizing these such that when we were going to get pressured with the greater cases in the fall and the winter, we'd be, be uh, better prepared. What do you think is the right course of action now uh, by governments and health experts to try and get this back under control if it can be brought back under control? 
Now, I, I think it can be brought back under control, but of course, it's going to take some significant efforts. And I think I like to break it down into what we can all do. I and mean, we certainly have to think of this as what individuals can do. There is some individual responsibility. Of course, that's not the whole story, but we are capable of making decisions and making good decisions and, you know, avoiding certain scenarios like, you know, house parties or crowded gatherings in, in, in houses or in private parties. We've heard a source of many outbreaks. That's just one example. But individual decision-making is, is, is helpful. Of course, we have to focus on businesses and organizations. If you house people under a roof for any reason, maybe you're a business, maybe you're a school, maybe you're a library, maybe you're a condo owner, if you house people under one roof, you are responsible to ensure a safe environment, be it for your staff, for your students, for your customers, and there's a, a certain responsibility there. And then I think lastly, we have to think about what the responsibility is of the governments and the public health units. Are you setting policy to set businesses and civilians up for success? Are you optimizing your epidemic response? Have you optimized testing and tracing capacity and all these other fundamental pillars of an epidemic response? So I think we all have a job to do. And if we all do our job, we'll get through the fall and the winter okay. But if there's breakdowns in that chain, it's going to be a, a bit of a rough fall and winter, unfortunately. Let me drill down on that a little bit. So when, when we look at some of the measures that have been taken by government, for instance, you know, dialing back bar hours and so on, uh, do you think this can be managed with those kinds of approaches or do you think we're, we're, we should be concerned and, and considering getting back to the, uh, the, the sort of complete lockdown scenario we saw back at, in the first wave of this pandemic? Schools closed, businesses closed, people staying home. Are we going to get there again, do you think? It's hard to say. Uh, and certainly uh, nobody, nobody wants a lockdown. We know exactly what that's like. We know how horrendous that can be economically, medically, socially, psychologically, I mean, that is damaging. And we've already been through that before. The key here is, can you intervene now with some more, I, I guess the word is targeted public health initiatives to really get these cases under control so that there doesn't have to be a lockdown? I think the answer is, yeah, sure we can. But I think it just gets harder and harder to accomplish as case numbers go up and up and up. And as you see a rise in cases, I think, unfortunately, the options to successfully manage this with targeted interventions, uh, it sadly goes down. And the probability of getting this under control with targeted interventions is just, there are just fewer and fewer uh, targeted interventions that will keep this under control. And you, unfortunately, I think they'll need to use more blunt instruments uh, mm -hmm. as cases climb. But I don't think it's too late to do it. Uh, but I think we're probably getting close to some threshold. Do we need, uh, let, me, let me finish on this with the issue of information. Do we need better information from our health and political leaders about uh, the source of these new outbreaks so we can understand, you know, uh, what behavior has to be changed? Is, is it enough to p tell people to avoid social gatherings without being specific about which kinds are triggering the spread? No, that's a very good point. Uh, I have a few thoughts on that. One is that we know that any any gathering of people in an indoor setting, doesn't matter if there's two people or 20 people or 2,000 people, any gathering of people in an indoor setting, uh, you, can, you can certainly transmit this infection. So we have to really ensure that we keep indoor environments as safe as possible. The second thing is with information, um, yeah, there does, it, it, you know, I think that answer might differ depending on where you are in the country. But when you look at what is known about many of the cases or many of the outbreaks, there's oftentimes uh, a lot of unknown information. You know, where did the person get this? Do we have uh, the highest caliber of contact tracing? And there certainly is a need for 
better information and I would even say better transparency of the existing information in some ex- in some cases, not in all cases, uh, but better information and in some cases better transparency of the existing information such that uh, public health officials can, and, and, and senior political leaders can, can make policy and also so that the general public is, is more informed about what's happening and where it's happening so that they can make better decisions for themselves. All right, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, thanks again for your time tonight. I do appreciate it. My pleasure. So with the prospect of a return to lockdowns, the federal government has moved to fast-track the bill containing the new economic support measures for Canadians who need them. Debate on the bill began in the House of Commons today. Those measures made more generous to win the support of the NDP for the minority government. And the measures replaced the CERB, emergency, the emergency response benefit. In a moment, MPs will debate the government's approach. But first, details of those new measures. The Liberals introduced a new bill last Thursday in the House of Commons. This bill includes a replacement for CERB, the Canada Recovery Benefit. This new benefit is for all those who do not qualify for employment insurance. The threshold for EI eligibility has been reduced to 120 hours of insurable work for those re-entering the system. The Canada Recovery Benefit will provide $500 per week for up to 26 weeks to self-employed or those who do not qualify for EI but still need income support. The Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit is a new initiative that provides $500 per week for up to two weeks for workers who are sick or who must self-isolate due to COVID-19. And the new Canada Recovery Caregiver Benefit, which will take effect on September 27, 2020, for one year, will provide $500 per week for up to 26 weeks per household to eligible Canadians who are unable to work because they need to care for children or family members due to the closure of schools, daycare centres or care facilities. The bill also proposes to extend the federal government's authority to spend all the money needed to fight COVID-19 until December 30th. When Bill Morneau, the finance minister, resigned, it was clear the prime minister was going to do whatever it took to shut down the noise around the Wee scandal. He was more concerned about himself and covering his own hide than governing. So he locked up Parliament, wasting precious time that could have been used doing work for Canadians. Doesn't the Prime Minister know that his scandals are not going to go away and that by trying to cover them up, he has put his own interests above the interests of Canadians, their lives, their livelihoods, and their peace of mind. Speaking for the members on this side of the House, I can say we have all been very, very hard at work over the past six weeks. We put together the safe restart agreement at the beginning of the summer because we knew that a second wave would be coming. And that's why we knew we needed to give the provinces $19 billion to help us get ready together. And then, just a few weeks ago, we knew that it was a priority to get kids safely back to school. Another $2 billion, Mr. Speaker. Well, let's discuss the federal government's response to the surge in COVID cases and the new supports for Canadians. Lots of concern and anxiety as people transition from the CERB to EI. Arif Farani is a Toronto-area Liberal MP and the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Justice. Dan Albus is a British Columbia Conservative MP and the critic for the environment and climate change for the official opposition. And Peter Julian is a British Columbia NDP MP and his party's House Leader. Good to see you all, gentlemen. Mr. Farani, let me start with you. How quickly will Canadians who need these new COVID-19 supports actually get them? 
So uh, thank you, Peter. I think we'll, they'll be getting them very quickly, provided we get the legislation through the House. We're very encouraged by the fact that at least one of the opposition parties has declared that they are interested in supporting this important bill. And the bill will have measures in it that will make the benefits available to those who attest to it. And it's provided on a retroactive basis in any event. So, for example, for accessing a benefit for a two-week period, you would apply for it after the end of those two weeks. So, but it's true that for, for the next, uh, so it's true that some mm -hmm. people should expect to have no income for a couple of weeks until these benefits get paid out, no? Well, that may be the case, but what we're encouraged by, Peter, is that a number of people, there are 3.5 million people on CERB, 2.5 million of those 3.5 million have already transitioned onto EI, so that's a very encouraging number. So we're talking about a million other people, those million other people are obviously significant. The question is whether they will okay. be eligible for EI or whether it's the Canada Recovery Benefit, the care Caregiver Benefit, or the Sickness Benefit that will step in, but they will be supported provided they are eligible for one of those three benefits or the EI package. Okay, Mr. Albus, as we see these numbers of COVID-19 cases surging again, more and more people will need economic support, uh, it would appear, from the government. Your party has been, is reluctant, I think, to fast-track these measures. Uh, how come? Well, look, every time this government has put forward emergency legislation, they've only had to come back and correct it later. First, it was the wage subsidy at 10% that clearly wasn't enough to support Canadian businesses and jobs. That eventually had to be changed to 75%. Uh, again, they put forward a, a package to help people on disability. Um, many opposition parties, including the Conservatives, said it wasn't uh, sufficient, and we wanted to go to full scrutiny of Parliament, and the government denied it that. And guess what? They came back, and they came back with a, with a bigger package. Uh, we, you know, on August 22nd, we could have had the opportunity to review this legislation. We were scheduled to have Parliament sit. And instead of doing that, the government did a press conference uh, with big fanfare with Christia Freeland saying that the benefits are coming. Uh, but now when we're getting down to the brass tacks, when they were at the 11th hour, they're jamming through with their friends in the NDP, the Justin Trudeau and his friends are jamming okay. this through fifty billion dollars in four hours. Are you prepared That's to hold it? Are you prepared to? Process. Are you prepared to delay those benefits to people to make that point? Hey, we're here for Canadians. We want to support Canadians, but this process of simply, uh, you know, coming to Parliament and saying it's my way or the highway is not how a minority Parliament is supposed to work. Right. If uh, Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh want to work together on these things and short circuit Parliament, I guess that's their choice. But every time, Peter, we've looked at these bills, we've made them better down the road, and there's been mistakes every time they try to right. jam Mr. it through Julian, a one-day session. Mr. Julian, the Democrats are giving the government the backing and the votes to speed these measures through. Does, does that that mean that you're satisfied with the way the government has managed this transition from CERB to these new supports? Not at all. This, this was completely avoidable. What the government should have done is called us back in August, a month ago, and, and have us go through the regular legislative process. But we're, we're not going to punish Canadians for, for the, the government's irresponsibility. They were obviously trying to avoid the, the kind of scrutiny that comes from the multiple scandals that the government's had. Uh, we want to make sure that we get those benefits, including the enhanced supports and the sick leave that the NDP fought for and obtained in a minority parliament. Can you give it proper scrutiny in a couple of days of debate in the House? One day uh, of well, debate. What I, what I was going to suggest, uh, just going to mention that when the Conservatives were in a minority government, they, they spent on liquidity supports $114 billion for the big banks and actually hid it from Parliament. So the Conservatives are the last, uh, the last party who can actually give a lesson to any other political party about scrutiny. Uh, I, I think this is uh, the government's actions have been completely irresponsible. And, and uh, the NDP and Jagmeet Singh have, have raised this repeatedly. But we want to make sure 
everybody who lost their benefit as of midnight last night it actually gets it as soon as possible. And that's the reality. There's uh, okay. over a million Canadians now that have fallen off a cliff. We have a responsibility as parliamentarians to provide those supports as quickly as possible. All right, Mr. Verani, with a second wave upon us now in cases spiking in the provinces, the, the chorus from the provinces and their supporters in the House of Commons, the Conservatives took this up today, uh, are increasing for health transfers from the federal government, an increase in those transfers with no strings attached. And I guess a lot of Canadians might be wondering if this fight over finances uh, threatens to damage the cooperation over the pandemic response between the feds and the provinces. Okay, and Peter, if I could just respond very quickly. Uh, in terms of the my way or the highway, it's a complete uh, mischaracterization. We've been open to amendments, and we actually received two uh, positive amendments from the NDP and have implemented them. In terms of oversight of the package, that oversight has been occurring outside of Parliament. It is now occurring inside of Parliament. Minister Qualtro indicated five weeks ago when she had that okay. press conference, yeah, she was you... open to developing the, the process. In terms of the situation uh, with the numbers and, and the question you've asked with respect to the health transfer, you know that as part of a safe restart, which is, I'd emphasize, the safe component of the restart, we've put $19 billion on the table. Right. To they, say they, they say they need more. They say they want, they want to manage issue. the response. They don't want you to manage it. Stay out of their business and give them more money without strings attached. That's not going to happen, is it? Or do you think that needs to be entertained? Well, what I can say to you is that we've heard loudly and clearly from Canadians over the course of this summer that, for example, when it comes to uh, the health care standards in long-term care institutions for seniors, people do want the federal government to insert itself. So when we are providing money, there will be a direction provided with respect to how that okay. money will be spent. Mr. Albus, uh, I've got to move along. I have to move along. Mr. Albus, how concerned should we be about a battle between the federal government and the provinces over health transfers? Look, Canada's Conservatives want to, to, to support provinces so that we can support Canadians you know, through this crisis. But let's be clear that uh, provinces should be partners, not punching bags. And it seems that this government is constantly invading, telling provinces how to do it. And what it does is it just creates, it poisons the well in terms of how we can get things done. And so, you know what, rather than consulting and working with provinces on the areas that they need help with, this government seems to do the opposite. And then they tell us to congratulate them uh, when there's divisions in, in the Confederation. So th this is, this is again, mismanaging the uh, interprovincial relationships. All right, Mr. Julian, how should the federal government handle this, uh, this, press, this demand and the pressure is going to be stepped up, I'm sure, for more health transfers to the provinces with no strings attached? Well, th th this has been a massive cut up, cutback that was started by the Conservatives, continued by the Liberals. I mean, what we've seen is, as health costs have grown, uh, the federal government has contributed less and less. So what, this is a perfectly reasonable uh, request from provinces that the federal government start being responsible again after a decade of, of massive cutbacks in health care. We have to adequately fund our health care system. If, if there's no other lesson that comes out of this pandemic, it's that providing a universal health care system, even expanding it into pharmacare and dental care, is a, a good frontline protection against pandemics. All right. As I mentioned, gentlemen, our, our, our time is tight this evening, and uh, that's the time we have. But I thank you all for weighing in on this conversation. We'll continue to follow developments here, but thanks for your time tonight. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, take care. Well, our Monday panel of press gallery journalists joins me now. Susan Delacourt is a columnist with the Toronto Star, Joël Denis Bellavance, the Parliamentary Bureau Chief for La Presse, and John Iveson, a columnist with the National Post and Parliamentary Bureau Chief for Post Media. Good to see you all again. Susan, let me start with you. We're seeing the second wave of COVID-19 now in a big spike in cases in, in a number of provinces, particularly Ontario and Quebec. The Prime Minister and his government led this pandemic fight when it, when it hit in March, and um, how good do you feel now about the spirit of cooperation on display between the feds and the provincial governments as we head into this second wave? 
Well, we saw this happen about a week ago where the, the provinces were here in Ottawa, or a lot of them were here in Ottawa, Ontario, Quebec, uh, Manitoba, and... Alberta. Uh, Alberta, of course. How could I forget Jason Kenney? But they were here on behalf of all the provinces, and that was intentional to say, all right, you guys, um, we want to make sure that uh, we have a voice in this throne speech and uh, and in the post-pandemic or the pandemic second-wave planning. I don't know that... Um, I don't know that we're seeing a revival of the national unity conversation that we thought we were going to have before the pandemic hit, but it does seem that provinces are trying to reassert themselves again. Whether Canadians have a lot of tolerance for um, national unity feuds is another matter. I've been watching, not just because I work for the Toronto Star, I've been watching Doug Ford really closely in this, and Doug Ford seems to be a little more inclined to be more the Ontario broker of the Federation than some of the other provinces. So I'm going to be watching over the next days uh, ahead to see what Ford's tone is on all this. All right, Joel Denis, we, we saw the bloc leader repeating his demands for an increase in health transfers to the provinces while Ottawa's accused of interfering in provincial jurisdictions with pandemic responses. Give me your thoughts. How worried should we be about a a federal provincial turf war as the second wave now starts to hit across the country. I think we should be worried for the following reasons. The provinces feel that the speech from the throne that was delivered last week was totally irrelevant for them because there was no money increased transfer for health care, for example. And the premiers uh, made it clear that they're not happy by uh, calling the government, uh, uh, saying that the government was not acting in a proper way to, in helping provinces face the second wave. So. The blame game has started already, and you can see that the also the Bloc Québécois, but also the Conservative Party will relay those concerns and grievances of the provinces on the floor of the House of Commons. So the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister, Christophe Rillet, will hear a lot about it right. in the coming days. And they were hearing some of it in the House again today. John, what are your thoughts on this and uh, whether we're going to, whether we should expect to see and whether we will see a, a continuing climate of cooperation or whether cracks are starting to show here? No, I think the cracks are starting to show. I mean, we've got, uh, when Justin Trudeau came in, there was an alignment of left of centre governments, not all liberal, there was an NDP government in Alberta, but, but uh, it allowed him to get things done, such as the climate change framework and the, uh, the expansion of the, uh, the uh, uh, CPP. Since then, 12 of 13 premiers have changed in Canada. And you've now got a, a, an array of right of centre, mainly conservative governments, from Prince Edward Island to the Rockies. And they are not only resenting the, what they see as intrusions into provincial jurisdictions, but they're actually uh, aligning together to try and get things done. So, for example, I think, um, I think it was a missed opportunity when they came to, to Ottawa to ask for uh, a Canada health transfer increase, because I don't think there's money on the table to do that. It's just too expensive. But I do think that in areas like, for example, internal trade, we might start to see alignment, certainly between Ontario and Quebec, where uh, Doug Ford and Francois Legault are in, a, in agreement and very pragmatic right of centre premiers. I actually think we see, could, could see 
progress in areas like internal trade, they could bypass the federal government. Yeah, and I guess the thing to watch for, Susan, is whether, you know, Canadians want to hear that conversation now or whether they want to see everybody pulling the same direction during the the pandemic. But let me me sort of flip a bit to you here. And lots of concern and anxiety as people transition from CERB uh, to EI. Uh, For some, it's an easier process than others. The government is now trying to fast-track the new measures through Parliament. How has the government handled this transition, in your view? Well, it looks... like everything with this government, it looks always like it's happening at the last minute. Um, you know, they've had, uh, as, as many critics have pointed out, they've had quite a while to prepare for this transition. Um, and while at, you saw the government moving very quickly at the beginning of the pandemic, you see it moving less quickly now. It, it, it seems to be falling back into its, um, its ways of doing everything, you know, right up to the last minute. So why after sitting all summer long, uh, after after not sitting all summer long, and uh, now being back a couple of days, why the House of Commons suddenly has to vault into, you know, marathon sittings, it does, it does say something about the pace of um, things. John, John, let me ask you for your thoughts on that. Uh, how do you think the government's handling all of this? Well, I think it's slightly concerning that they were uh, so keen to... to basically jump as high as Jagmeet Singh told them to jump. I'm not sure it works for him particularly either. We can maybe get into that later. But, but for, the, for the Liberal government, it did look very, very reactive. You know, the, the idea that they were going to suddenly increase the value of the uh, Canada recovery benefit and uh, add in these, uh, these paid holidays. Um, it does look a bit like a government that's kind of at the, at the mercy of every wind. All right. Uh, let me hear you on that, Gerald. And in the context as well, is how, how has Jagmeet Singh played this? First of all, the government handling the transition and uh, Mr. Singh saying, look, we, I got what I wanted. I'm prepared to keep the government afloat for now. But he's also making it clear that the government could stay afloat for some time as long as it delivers Jagmeet Singh's agenda. Yeah. On the first point, I would agree with Susan that the government looks like it's uh, working on it in the last at uh, the last minute. Look, the Prime Minister uh, provoked Parliament and, uh, in the beginning of August. And the same week, those changes that we're, that we're actually debating, most of them were announced by Christopher Freeland and Carla Crawford, the Minister of uh, Employment and, and Development. Uh, so they were in the machinery for a little while. And now they're no, that, that was back. That was changes. back in August when they first announced they exactly. were going to do it. You know. Exactly. So but they're uh, trying to make changes at the last minute to satisfy the NDP. They should have had those conversations earlier, um, approach uh, Mr. Singh earlier, so that those changes would have been included in the first draft of the law. So there's uh, catching up to the NDP demand at the last minute, just to make sure that they survive the speech on the throne. As for the NDP, I would say the NDP has played its cards very well. They are getting some stuff that they uh, feel that there is necessary to make sure that those who might be still affected by the crisis are not left behind. And so kudos to the NDP that trying to uh, secure some key uh, things for the for, for some key segment of the population all so right, Susan, they can call it a win for them susan how's jagmeet singh playing all of this i actually think he's done not a bad job but i i i do i give the liberals some credit for that too i um i actually see some choreography in all of this i think the reason it wasn't written into the bill at the outset was because uh i think justin trudeau said i have no evidence for this by the way i'm just speculating but in, in informed speculation. Um, I think that uh, that Trudeau gave Jagmeet Singh a couple of days to go out and say forcefully what his demands were, 
always knowing that yes was going to be the answer. And uh, Jagmeet Singh has, uh, has got what he wanted. I will say the, the distinction that goes to our previous point that we were talking about uh, is I think Jagmeet Singh has played it correctly in that he's talking about individual Canadians rather than disputes between governments. I think Canadians are keen to hear what people are doing for individuals, but I don't know that if I walked out onto my street right now that Canadians care too much or my neighbours would care too much about whether Quebec or federal government is paying for my health care. I just want to know somebody is. Yeah, probably a good point. John, final word to you here. I mean, do we, should we expect the, uh, the uh, maybe it's not the way, to, the political love affair between Liberals and Democrats to continue well beyond what many of us thought would at the very latest uh, be a likely election in the spring? Or are we going to go beyond that? Well, I think when you look at what Jagmeet Singh has said, it, it sounds like he could, uh, could pursue this strategy indefinitely. I mean, my question would be, uh, does he get any credit for this? I mean, do the NDP actually benefit electorally by uh, aligning themselves so closely with the Liberals? I mean, in my experience on Parliament Hill, the NDP do well when the Liberals are not doing well. And uh, it does not strike me that when all this is said and done, Jagmeet Singh is going to come out of it particularly well. All right. Uh, we'll talk again next week. Thank you all for your time tonight. Appreciate it. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. From all of us here at CPAC, thanks for watching. I'll see you next time.